with Russia being so much focused on its war in Ukraine and without its desire to get into the open confrontation with Azerbaijan, Armenia has been feeling very much alone. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Nagorno-Karabakh is an ethnic Armenian enclave within the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. In the early 1990s, following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a bloody war, resulting in Armenia's de facto control of Nagorno-Karabakh. For most of the last 30 years, This was a frozen conflict with occasional flare-ups and only fitful progress towards a diplomatic and political solution. Then, in September 2020, Azerbaijan launched an offensive, resulting in the rout of the Armenian army and the capture of large swaths of Nagorno-Karabakh before Russia brokered a ceasefire. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shaken up that ceasefire. And over the course of 2022, Azerbaijan has expanded its control of key strategic territories in the region, including within Armenia itself. Now, according to my guest today, Alessia Vartanyan, there is a very high risk that Azerbaijan may soon press its military advantage and resume a full-scale conflict in the region. Alessia Vartanyan is the International Crisis Group's senior analyst for the South Caucasus region. We kick off discussing a worsening humanitarian crisis in parts of Nagorno-Karabakh sparked by a blockade of a key corridor linking Armenia to parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. We then discuss trends in the conflict in recent weeks and trends in diplomacy including a hopeful move by the European Union, which recently approved a civilian monitoring mission. So if you are a premium subscriber, you got access to this episode several days before everyone else. Thank you. If you would like to become a premium subscriber, there are two ways of doing so. If you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe with just a few taps of your finger. Or you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We are increasingly reliant on listener support to keep this show going. So please do become a premium subscriber and help us produce great content. By becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our huge archive. And you'll also get early access to episodes like this. Now, here is my conversation with Alicia Vartanyan of the International Crisis Group. So, 
So we are speaking at nearly the two-month mark of an ongoing blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh by ostensibly Azerbaijani civilians, though acting under the sort of wink and a nod of the Azerbaijani government. What is the humanitarian situation inside Nagorno-Karabakh right now? So during this uh, couple of months, the situation has been changing. And in the very beginning, I would say people had many more problems with food products, with medical supplies. I spoke to some people on the ground and they were telling me about with empty uh, store shelves and uh, the problems the local population had with getting even elementary drugs like painkillers, not to mention those who have problems with cancer or something that has to be treated on a regular basis. The longer it went, the more there was a potential to get some medical supplies by the ICRC. And the Russian peacekeepers also finally started delivering some food products and some very elementary things. Having said that, that does not really relieve the whole situation. Earlier this week, I was looking into the social media account of a person I know from the Karabakh, and uh, she was describing with long lines of people who were waiting to get oranges and tangerines, which are the first fruits that were delivered to Nagorno-Karabakh during this couple of months. So people for the first time saw the fruits. And I heard the stories about people making very difficult decisions whether to keep their cow for milk or actually to go for meat. And mm. half of the population of Nagorno-Karabakh lives in the main town called Stepanakert. And these people, they don't have farming plots, they don't have cows, they don't have chicken. So they mainly, during this couple of months, I mean, if you put aside with uh, humanitarian support that started finally getting delivered on the ground very recently, for a very long time, they had to depend only on their relatives or on some friends who could come and bring them some eggs, for example, you know, or potatoes. And I've even heard that schools are closed mostly because there's no heat. And again, this is all part of like a blockade that, as I understand it, you have these like eco protesters or people who are posing probably as eco-protesters blocking the main route from Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, thereby blocking like the one kind of lifeline that these people rely on. What has been the response of the Azerbaijani government to these ostensibly civilian protesters who are blocking the humanitarian access and all access in and out of Nagorno-Karabakh? Baku has been supporting them, and uh, no one made a secret that with so-called protesters, I mean, those who are standing there and blocking the road, that they receive a support. And then, you know, I mean, even in the social media, they were basically kind of, you know, trying to recruit people, and they would discuss how some students can skip classes if they go and stand there at the road. But I mean, you know, in parallel to the blockade and all these humanitarian problems that I was describing, there is a continuous problem with the gas supply. The only gas pipeline that delivers 
gas. And look, I mean, this is a mountainous area and then this is winter. So it's really cold there now. And then the gas pipeline is located, parts of it are located in the territories that are controlled by the Azerbaijani troops. And during these couple of months, there have been an increasing number of occasions when the gas would get cut. And previously, it took just like a day, months to fix these things. Now it takes much longer. And because of the lack of the gas and that people can use for heating, they start switching to electricity for heating. And then that creates enormous problems for the electric system in Nagorno-Karabakh. And because of that, people then finish up with neither gas nor electricity. And that is the reason why the local government had to go for a partial closure of all the kindergartens and also the schools. In the beginning, it was because of the lack of the food to give to the kids. But later, they also started doing that because of the lack of the heating. So in late 2020, it was Russia that helped to broker a ceasefire from the latest and most significant round of fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it was Russian peacekeepers who were supposed to guarantee humanitarian access along this Lachin corridor. Why have they been unable to do so? You know, since the war that Russia started in Ukraine, we have been seeing a bit different kind of Russian peacekeepers, <laughs> you know, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And I would say that this is like a continuation of the Russian whole strategic war, the whole South Caucasus. Russia is focused so much on the invasion of Ukraine that it would prefer to avoid dispersing its resources in other places. So you would see Russia avoiding any kind of open confrontations in the South Caucasus, and Armenia-Azerbaijan context is one of them. And since the Russian invasion, in fact, we started seeing uh, Azerbaijan openly making use of its military advantage along the front lines, and the Russian peacekeepers were either not able or preferred not to interfere. There were two escalations in Nagorno-Karabakh in March and August of last year. Also one major escalation at the border of Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is the area where Russia has both its military, but also the border guards deployed on the Armenian side. And each next escalation produced more casualties. So in a way, if you have to analyze the Russian role and also in its inaction in the current crisis around Nagorno-Karabakh with a blocked road, you have to look back at where it started and why Russia prefers to stay away and not to exercise any kind of pressure or not to get into direct conflict. And that seems to extend diplomatically as well. I mean, it was Russian pressure and Russia's intervention that helped to end the conflict in late 2020. And it was Russian peacekeepers who helped to guarantee that peace. But as you said, the peacekeepers have been ineffective because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its focus there. And diplomatically, it seems now that Russia is not much of a player as well either. Well, Russia wants to think about itself, you know, as uh, the one who is still having a leading role. And in fact, the Russian presence on the ground makes Russia much more important, right? I mean, then you compare it to, for example, the European Union or any other kind of blocks or countries in the world. 
In the very beginning, when Russia just deployed its peacekeepers to Nagorno-Karabakh, many people were happy. And you could see the Russian peacekeepers being welcomed by the local population because they saw in that they were really there to help and to protect them. I mean, in terms of like protecting their future or their existence in their homeland. But the longer it went, and especially with this escalation that started taking place last year, the more you can see people getting really frustrated and voicing openly their dissatisfaction with the fact that the Russian peacekeepers are not really kind of doing something to stop with blockade, for instance. And it goes back to Russia's declining ability to exercise pressure. And also, in a way, the fact that Russia has to act alone and then feels very isolated in the world. You can see the Russian senior officials more and more speaking about they're just getting angry at, for example, European Union, that it still continues making attempts to mediate between Armenia and Azerbaijan or deploys its mission. But if you take a step back and you can see that in a way, Russia should be interested because what the European Union has been doing is contributing to keeping the stability, the key interest of Russia at this very moment in the region. So your recent report suggests that Azerbaijan may press its current military advantage sometime soon and spark another round of fighting. Could you explain how we got to this point, say starting in September 2020, when Azerbaijan launched this major military offensive that shook up about 30 years of status quo? Armenia almost lost its army. It still has people in uniform, but you can see that it's uh, not able really to respond to the Azerbaijani troops. And in addition to that, Armenia was never able to get weapons to replace those that they used during the 2020 war. And it has been happening in parallel with the processes that we have been observing when Azerbaijan not just uh, won the war and good, you know, high ground in many places. But in addition to that, Azerbaijan has been purchasing many more modern weapons from Turkey and Israel during the last couple of years since that war. They have the natural gas and, and the energy exports and oil exports to fund weaponry that they could use to press their advantage. Yeah, and then also very close relationships with Israel and Turkey. That has been helping Azerbaijan a lot. And in addition to that, Azerbaijan has a strategic relationship with Turkey that they're taking an active part in not just in training of Azerbaijani soldiers, but in advising them when they are, for example, going for certain military operations. So that military advantage, while Armenia does not really have a visibility to reform or to do something with its army, and Russia is a strategic ally of Armenia. And with Russia being so much focused on its war in Ukraine and without its desire to get into the open confrontation with Azerbaijan, Armenia has been feeling very much alone. You know, that uh, has put Armenia in a situation when it had nothing else to do but to go for the negotiations last year. And they started the peace process with Azerbaijan but unfortunately, this did not really prevent with attacks that took place last year. 
especially the last one that was the most serious because it it lasted for two days you know it, it was quite large scale along 200 kilometers and 300 people died in just you know several hours of fighting so that should tell you something and so these kind of skirmishes last year further expanded Azerbaijan's strategic advantage in Nagorno-Karabakh and also inside Armenia itself. And that is kind of the situation we see ourselves in today in which Azerbaijan has a clear and distinct military advantage. And there is a potential that they might want to take advantage of that advantage and press further. And it's in this context that the European Union has decided to send a civilian observer force to try to cool tensions. Can you explain what that potential civilian observer force might look like, might do, and how and when they might eventually be deployed? The European Union is now in the process of recruiting potential staff, and they want to do that as soon as possible and for a good reason. When you travel to with uh, places of uh, recent fighting, the one that I was just describing, you know, the one that took place in September 2022, you can see that the Azerbaijani troops, they are seated on the mounting over the gorge. And if, for example, there is a, another fighting, they can easily march through that gorge and take over the road and then the area that will effectively cut Armenia in two. And this is going to lead to enormous humanitarian problems because around 200,000 Armenians live in that areas and uh, people naturally will have to do something. They probably will be running from their homes and this will create humanitarian problems. But in addition to that, there will be a problem with Azerbaijan controlling parts of Armenia, and it will create an enormous pressure on the Armenian government. And that will likely have to go for new consequences. So basically, I would imagine like another ceasefire statement that will be declared a capitulation for Yerevan. And then that will also create problems to Nagorno-Karabakh, not just political ones, because Armenia most likely will have to sign to anything that will come from Azerbaijan or Nagorno-Karabakh, but also in terms of the travel to Nagorno-Karabakh. So what the European Union did, and this is really a very smart thing, they first, right after the September escalation, it took them very little length. They sent a temporary mission. The guys came from Georgia, where the European Union has been running a monitoring mission for almost 15 years now. And they were doing with observation, you know, of the areas reporting back to Brussels, but also to the capitals of the member states. And then the European Union took the decision of deploying a proper mission. And uh, we don't know the final number yet. People are talking about hundreds, and they must probably will be responsible not just for this dangerous section, the one that is most critical, I would say, in this very current context, but also all other parts of the state border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And what's really very important right now is, on the one hand, to give this mission enough resource in terms of the staff and also finances and support, but also give them enough tools. And in that sense, I mean, Armenia provides full access to its territory. It could be good if Azerbaijan could do the same. If not, then Azerbaijan 
should at least uh, start cooperating with the mission for a security of the monitors and be cooperation with the other side for prevention of any kind of incidents and escalations in future. So this mission ostensibly is to prevent or deter a further Azerbaijani military offensive, but has Azerbaijan sort of consented to it at all that it will permit civilian EU monitors in areas under its de facto control or in Azerbaijan itself? So we have been hearing Baku producing careful statements about the mission, which uh, makes us think that there can be a space for conversations. And uh, when talking to the European Union's representatives, we understand that they are in dialogue with Baku, you know, to see what can be done. While at this very moment, the deployment of the mission still looks like only to prevent any future Azerbaijani attack, you can also look at this mission from a different perspective. And this is where Azerbaijan could get interested if they are really about like establishing peace and also kind of longer term stability in the region. The mission itself, it's not about just policing. And also the monitors, they are not a human shield. They are not to protect the, the people. They are civilian. They don't even have guns. What makes this mission really work and such missions work is with cooperation that should take place between the sides. And for example, in the Georgian context, a similar EU mission has been facilitated in the hotline between the military and security uh, representatives from the sides. So anytime there is kind of, you know, like a flare up or some incident or someone gets detained or even cow crossing the line, you know, they can call each other and can resolve the issue. It would be so essential to have something like this uh, in the context of Armenia, Azerbaijan, which is much more militarized than in Georgia, because here you can see like a 10 trucks, for example, traveling to the Armenian military position. So before starting shooting at them, at least they can get uh, on the line and then start talking to the other side, asking like, what's going on? Is it like products that you brought or you're preparing an attack? And the other tool, in addition to the hotline, is also to get regular meetings of those who are based on the ground so that they can discuss with uh, some problems that they had recently and also warn each other about, for example, some drills or, I don't know, some holidays, sometimes even weddings with fireworks can produce, you know, concerns on the other sides and also shooting. And if that thing can work, then, in fact, you can start building on this sort of, you know, cooperation to see how to resolve decades-long problems with the water supply to the border areas on both sides, which is a major problem. And in Azerbaijani border areas, along the border with Armenia, you can find people who have kidney problems because they have issues with not receiving water that otherwise they could make use of. And then this is just because of insecurity and the lack of dialogue on the ground. So, you know, you can really work around this mission and then look at it not only from the perspective of someone who is there to, I don't know, punish someone. You can find a positive angle to that. And what we have been saying at Christ Group, that uh, this is how the mission should be working there. Like build confidence building measures as well. Absolutely. And we'd be like that conduit between the two sides for those kinds of mm-hmm. cooperation and confidence building measures that potentially can lead to something more significant. On 
the U.S. side, how has the State Department, Biden and Blinken managed this crisis thus far? I mean, it seems the U.S. has normal, friendly diplomatic relations with both sides, with Azerbaijan. They have a common foe in Iran with Armenia. I mean, you have a, a large and politically potent Armenian diaspora population here in the United States. I've seen statements from Blinken condemning the blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh and urging Azerbaijani authorities to lift the blockade. But in general, how has the U.S. approached this moment of potential crisis? Indeed, uh, we saw very strong statements coming from D.C. We also continue seeing uh, State Secretary Blinken. He's very much engaged and regularly gets on the phone with the leaders, you know, and the U.S. has just announced an appointment of its new envoy who will be responsible for going between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Who's that? He is a diplomat uh, who has recently been working a lot in Vienna, and he doesn't have a diplomatic rank, but I haven't heard anyone raising any particular issue on that. And what's really very important and what is often missing and listen, in this context is you can have a secretary Blinken, you know, or some people from the White House getting in and trying to help. But you don't really see much of the traction going on after that at the middle and low level from the U.S. side. And this is really very important in this very context. So, for example, for a number of occasions, we heard Washington saying, we support the force by the European Union, which is great. And this is really very important, you know, to sustain some coordination and cooperation with the European Union and, and contribute to each other efforts uh, to avoid the war, first of all. But, for example, the mission got deployed and we haven't heard the United States helping <laughs> in making, for example, Baku to support with cooperation that should be taking place in order to make this mission work and succeed. So, I mean, there are some gaps there that have to be filled, in my view. And, and then also there are the ways how the U.S. could be with its engagements and support could be more useful, I would say, in, in this very context. So lastly, in the near term, are there any indicators you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not, on the one hand, say this EU mission gets off the ground and starts you know, doing the kind of low-level confidence-building measures that you referenced earlier, or on the other hand, if Azerbaijan continues to press its military advantage. What will you be looking towards that will suggest to you how this might unfold in the coming you know, weeks? So I will be watching three key things. So one of them is upcoming spring. The moment snow starts melting in this part of the world, it opens many more opportunities for military operations, even kind of incidents, you know, that can spiral out into some new skirmishes and problems. And this is probably when we should definitely see and the EU monitors doing the work on the ground. I mean, it's really very important for them to start their operations by especially late March, early April. The second thing is I will be watching what will be happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan on the peace talks. They have been, you know, posed because of the Lachin blockade of the road and the peace talks have to continue. And I should say the topic that they are discussing, they are really very heavy and difficult. And I would say even that there is more chance for these talks to collapse rather than to succeed. So the moment we hear about the collapse, it will open more opportunities to make use of military force. 
to achieve some goals. And the third thing is, of course, what will be happening with Russia in light of its continuous invasion of Ukraine. No matter whether Russia is winning or losing, it's definitely going to have an effect both in Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also in in the broader neighborhood. We all have to watch (laughs) to see how it will continue affecting the region. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.